Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about Mothering Sunday, Hmm. which we've seen on Remembrance Sunday. Uh Which is actually not that inappropriate considering the film is set in 1924 and the uh, war dead from World War I is a thread throughout the film. Throughout the film. Um, But one of many, I wasn't really looking forward to this. Mm. It really looked like ITV period drama, Mm. a lot of, you know, the ideas I think of a lot of people walking into rooms and saying, oh, uh, hello. But it was directed by uh, Ava Husson, who's Mm. a French lady, and I thought maybe that would be interesting. Like a French, Mm. you know, we always talk about English people who go over and make movies in America and the kind of impact of English people, the English outlook on Mm. American cinema. And I thought it might be interesting if there was some, you know, relationship Mm. between what the French kind of outlook on the English is. Well, it was much more visually interesting uh, than you would expect a British heritage film to to be, really. I really agree with that. And by the end of the Uh, film, I was really enjoying it. I just mm. found it very moving. Mm. How about you? Um, There are many things that I loved about it. Um, I really loved the sensuality Mm -hmm. of the film. I mean, and by that, I don't necessarily mean the sex scenes, though those were a pleasure. I mean, you know, the sun on the the girl's face and her hair streaming and then these close-ups of, uh, you know, uh, cloth. And yeah, it's a a film that's very sensuous, Mm. uh, very tactile in in a way. It's quite Uh, lusty, actually. Yes, that too. And the other thing I think maybe the Frenchness, if you like, brought to it, is less of an emphasis on dialogue. I expected it to be wordy and talky, mm. and there are long stretches where it's just action against music, mm. and kind of pure filmmaking in that sense, yes. which I really enjoyed. It's so interesting to see a woman director doing this, because there are long stretches where uh, Jane's body is the focus of a whole scene, Right, and she walks naked through the whole house, and and yet it never feels fetishized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know the combination. I mean, the attitude towards the female body, you know, and indeed the attitude towards the male body is so different, you know, than what you're used to seeing. Yeah, it's kind of you. You really see the gender of the director, as as a factor. I mean, I'm not saying necessarily determining, you know, but as a factor in kind of how you're seeing what you're seeing, which I really appreciated. You know, I really enjoyed all of that. Mm. Um, I must say, you know, there was a, a moments I, I misread the film or, or it, it misdirected me or, you know, I was expecting something that didn't happen, which for me, I thought the love affair was going to be discovered. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, throughout her walk, uh, in the deserted house, naked. Yeah, you totally think you to- she's, she's going to be, be caught. Happened yeah. upon. Yeah, and actually, that was like a MacGuffin. Mac- yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, because it's you know it keeps your tension up and you know it keeps you on the on on the edge of your seat and then of course nothing happens, right? Um, so so I thought that was like really clever, and really interestingly desexualized. Yeah, like kind of. I mean, obviously, anybody who isn't dead is looking at those bodies and is having a reaction to those bodies, but but the film doesn't um, fetishize them. Yeah, yeah. You know? the, um, the the nudity um, really reminded me of Shoplifters, uh, which was the Japanese film we saw about that kind of constructed family of shoplifters, because mm. it had that moments or moments 
between the quote-unquote mother and father of the family where they sleep together and then afterwards they're just lying together and they're naked and there was something so it really captured that that feeling of liberation and freedom that you get being casually naked with someone who is mm. also casually naked you know mm. and this has that and also when she goes walking through the house on her own again the feeling of liberation that that I that I got out of her just exploring this mansion there's nothing to do with her she's new there um or maybe not new there but certainly mm. she's exploring it and she's just naked and it's not like it's not like she owns the place. It's, mm. There's no feeling of that. Like like I'm showing off that I'm the naked person in this house. She just is naked in this house. Mm. It kind of feels natural and casual, and I really enjoyed it. Mm. We should, Before we continue, we should tell the plot. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So the film is primarily set on Mother and Sunday, Mother's Day, in 1924, March the 30th. But it has a framing device mm. uh, about the main character, Jane, writing this novel, writing or becoming a novelist, um, and it engages in kind of flashback and s- not exactly non-chronological storytelling, but it does jump into previous parts of the story and bring them mm. to the fore at times. I think done very elegantly and mm. really works. And you, you understand where you are, I think. Mm. Um, so she's this maid for a kind of landed gentry family in the home county somewhere. The house is run by Colin Firth and Olivia Coleman. Mm. And Colin Firth and Olivia Coleman are going off to Henley with another couple of families for Mother's Day, you know, dinner by the river. Um, Jane, with the data herself, goes off with Paul Sheringham, who is the son of one of the uh, landed gentry families nearby, who should be at Henley today, but instead is spending the day with Jane illicitly, you know, no one knows they're together, and indeed he's supposed to be getting married to the daughter of one mm. of these other families, who is, during the course of the day, getting more and more pissed off that he's not there. I mean, I don't want to say too much more than that in just setting up the pricing. That's, yeah, that's the idea enough. of the story, right? Yeah, yeah. Early on, I was really thinking, oh, this is this is so ITV. And I mean that, I whenever I say ITV, I always mean that in the most derogatory way you can possibly imagine. <laughs> you know, uh, particularly when the phone rings at the house at the start... And uh, she picks it up, and it's Paul saying, meet up with me. And she tells Colin Firth it was a wrong number. Mm. And he says, a wrong number? On Sunday? Good heavens. Mm. And I thought, what? Really? You know, I thought, Jesus, is this what it's going to be like? Fortunately, it wasn't. Although, I, when she goes round to Paul and he opens the door, it does show that again in flashback, as if you've forgotten it from four minutes ago, which I thought was quite insulting. Again, luckily, it did no more of that. And actually to some extent, became quite elliptical in some storytelling. Yeah, it is. it actually is very elliptical. Um, and there are things that I liked about it and things that I didn't like about it. I mean, I liked those out-of-focus moments where, you know, you feel that you're within the realm of memory, yeah, uh, and of a lack of clarity and of things not being understood. I actually thought that this was a fantastic showcase for the best of British acting, you know, which is kind of really understated and ironic, you know, and always like at least, you know, having the potential for more than one meaning. And at the same time, you know, with a weight of emotion that is like, you know, instantly understood, I thought Olivia Colman and Colin Firth were both superb at doing that. And actually the interplay between them, 
you know, was I thought quite wonderful. I loved all those dialogue scenes, yeah, like at the table. Yeah. I thought they became superb. Kind of early on, especially with Olivia Colman, I was thinking, what are you doing in this film? Because her character is very dispossessed, kind of dead to the world. Mm. And as the film goes on, you learn that um, she's lost... All her children. Her children to the war. Um, so that's a very good reason for her being that way. But it's when, at the dinner table, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting for Paul to arrive. Um, and Colin Firth has... You know, he's very aware of how depressed his wife is and how awkward this day is being because Paul's not there and everyone's waiting. Mm. Um, and uh, Emma his betrothed, is, um, you know, getting more and more angry. So he he's very keenly aware of that, but he, he tries to kind of talk past it and give this toast, and that's when Olivia Coleman explodes. They're mm. not here. No one's here. Mm. And I thought, wow, it's just come alive. Mm. Um, and she was the one, well, Jane as well, but she was the one who started to make me feel... Um, Moved, very sad. Actually, I was with what a remarkable achievement to make me feel sad for the landed gentry. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But yeah. I really did. And that moment when she says to Jane how lucky she is to be an orphan because she hasn't she's been bereaved at the start of her life and has nothing else to lose. It's not true. She can lose people and she can be bereaved and we see it. Mm. But you understand why she says that and you mm. feel it. Yeah. Um I don't know. I mean, I was trying to make out what the film was saying about class because, you know, in a way, the affair between the maid and the scion of uh, the landed gentry is impossible because there's all this weight of expectations on him, right? And they both accept that it's impossible and they're just having fun even though, you know, they really like each other. Mm. And I thought at the end, you know, when she marries a black man, right, that there would be some kind of parallel choice, yeah, that, you know, she's now in a particular position of power by virtue of race, mm. uh, you know, and I thought there would be some kind of moral dilemma about her choice and so on that might parallel, yeah, her different position at the beginning of the film. But if there was, I didn't see it. No, yeah. actually, it really puts them on a level, almost, if you look at it in kind of identity terms, <clears throat> by she being a woman and he being a black man. It's like neither of them is a white man. So for the film, at least uh, kind of in principle, they exist on this same level. Well, it's but not... I, I don't think that's true. No, nor do uh, I. But that's uh, that's how the film, I think, constructs it, ultimately. Well, I think, you know, the film makes her, him, a philosopher. Mm. And, educated. You know, and German. educated and so on. Yeah, uh, whereas, you know, she's working in a shop. So I think the class element mm. is meant to compensate, you know, a little bit for that. But nonetheless, you know, there is a real social power deferential, you know, in a racist culture that I think is, is really not uh, addressed and certainly not paralleled, no. you know, to her earlier situation in a way that I think the, the film would have been more interesting had it tried to do so. Yeah, it's only hinted at there's that line where... Jane says to Donald, his name is, so-and-so doesn't like you. And he says, yeah, they don't like men like me. Mm. Which is clearly hinting at his race. Mm. But that is the closest the film gets to addressing that at all. Yeah. And it does feel like an, an illusion. Yes. Um, um, I was particularly irritated by the presence of Glenda Jackson, whom, you know, I love. I thought the, the concluding statement about prize, prices was just, like, so bloody awkward. You know, so... <laughs> Well, she appears basically in two scenes, one in a kind of flash forward scene or, you know, maybe the film's present where you just see her face reflected in a mirror overlooking 
a guardian. And I thought, oh, how wonderful, right? Because she's got such an extraordinary face. She looks like a real person you know, <laughs> of her age, right? She clearly has never had any work done at all. And there's something just extraordinary about her face, right? But then when she makes the last speech at the end, I thought it was terrible, actually. And yeah, really so, self-conscious, you know. So the smile. idea is that Glenn Jackson, you don't see for most of the film. Um, at, to the point where when she comes back, like, well, oh, yeah, Glenn Jackson was, was in this mm. at the start. <laughs> She is the old Jane in roughly the 80s. Um, and there's press at her doorstep. She lives in some kind of modest terrace home somewhere. And she clearly is some kind of superstar author at this point. Mm. You've been told she's going to write this great novel. All the men in her life die and that's what she mm. does. Um, and she's clearly winning like a Nobel Prize for Literature. Some huge prize. Mm. Um, and she vaguely rubbishes it. You know, She says, I've got, I've got water in the attic upstairs. And she says it with a kind of a smirk and an irony and an attachment because she asked the journalist, you know, have I disappointed you? Mm. But, um... That seems terrible. <laughs> oh, no, you could never disappoint us. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. Wasn't there uh, some author who did that when she won a Booker Prize or something? And... I've heard Iris Murdoch did something similar. Right. Yeah. It may, it, probably uh, drawing on that, but... Um, but still, I mean, that was... I, I thought that was just icky. Uh, but most of the film is not, right? I mean, it really could have actually done without Glenda Jackson, either at the start or end. Yeah. I think. Uh, uh, it was okay just being the story of Odessa Young as Jane. Yes. You know? um, I found it extremely moving. I think it's it has a really kind of legible feel for grief and loss. Yes. And how it hits people. Yes. And the thing is that the whole film, in a way, is about loss. Right, like, you know, everyone in the film is in pain. Uh, you know, they've their families have been, like, completely rent asunder, you know, by World War One. I. I mean, there's something about the juxtaposition of that with, you know, this Bildungsroman about a young girl becoming a writer that actually doesn't sit very comfortably with me, you know? Mm. I kind of... And yet the film is built around that, Right. You know, uh, it's the story of how she becomes how a writer. How she becomes a writer. And there are three reasons for it, right? Or three moments of it. You know, and the last one's a secret, right? Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, like that framing for you is too contrived. Yeah, I mean, is. I would agree that the film, again, can do without it. Yeah. Uh, actually, the just the story of her and Paul and that day that was such an impactful day in her life. Yes. Um, it is strong enough on its own that the film doesn't need to force this this extra thing. I mean, I, I, and it's not to say that you shouldn't have her becoming a writer and that sort of thing, but it does feel a little insistent on it. Well, you know, I, I thought... Um, I thought the film didn't know when to end, right? Because I thought the introduction of her husband, right, was something that... I mean, in itself, it's interesting, but actually the film doesn't treat it very interestingly. Yeah, mm. and then you think, well, that'll end there, right? Like, yeah, he dies, right? And uh, you know, they have the conversation in bed, yeah, and that's a spur, you know, to something else, you know. And then there's the Glenda Jackson thing, and then there's the flashback again, you know, to mm. the past. I, I just thought the film didn't really know when to end. Yeah, after uh, Donald dies, it it does take a little bit of time, but I must say that the kind of the sort of 20 or 30 minutes up until his death, I thought, were where the film was at its most interesting. When yes. it came alive, it, it kind of, it started to really bring life 
to certainly that central theme of, of grief and loss. Mm. Um, I mean, again, that was also when, um, well, basically that's when Paul dies. Yes. And so that's when uh, Colin Firth is is made kind of emotionally active at that point in a sense. You know, he's really distressed by it. He's wonderful. Um, and that's quite interesting to see because he's someone who, he's a character who is kind of holding on to, he's kind of trying to hold his, his household and his wife together, mm. essentially. And he's doing it constantly just, just about. And then this really kind of tears into him mm. and he has trouble. I, I thought he was wonderful, actually. I thought it was a really subtle thing to do, kind of to cross that line. He's great. Just, just stay on either side of it. He's great, and the film is very much about that. I, I think it may be in a way that we haven't quite yet talked about, you know, because it is also about the repression of emotion, uh, you know, when it's all right to feel, or the masks that people have to put on, yeah, to be social, mm. what can and cannot be said in public, yeah. Uh, feelings that have to be kept like hidden, yes, and you know roles that people have to perform, yeah, and kind of you know what society allows overtly and what can be done, yeah, in secret. I mean, all of those things are kind of you know uh, very English in a way. <laughs> I think, yeah, and the film kind of is is really quite wonderful with them actually. The only person who you feel expresses her emotions freely uh, is, you know, the young maid. And probably she only does so because as the Olivia Cole character says, she's not too bright. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, you know, because if she were, she wouldn't. Yeah, the kind of, you know, there's a place for things and sometimes things out of place can also be very dangerous. Uh, So I think the film conveys all of that I think you know very cleverly the 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 dining room scene where she's serving yeah and she's serving the you know, the the person she's fucking yeah is all full of little kind of knowing glances things overheard yeah yeah and, that introduction to that scene where it's playing the Vivaldi over it is built out of one look that leads to another that leads to another and everyone's looking at someone and knowing something about someone or not knowing mm. it. thought that was that was really interesting kind of set piece mm. if you like yes it's not showy mm. but it's every shot in that is meaningful read along with the others yes so it's the work of a real filmmaker for sure um, it's also shown in um, a non-standard aspect ratio at least it seemed clear to me it was, mm. it's, it's not full frame but it's not wide enough for even TV widescreen 69 mm. it looked to me like 149 which is Halfway, mm. um, which is a, a ratio I'm only familiar with because you used to get, I don't think you still do, on like UK Gold, back when it was UK Gold and not Dave, they used to show kind of old episodes of Nimmin the Buzzcocks or mm. whatever it might be. And because those were in full frame um, from the 90s, but people were starting to have mm. widescreen TVs, they would crop the top and bottom just enough for you to be able to show a bit more of the image horizontally, but not completely widescreen you wouldn't mm. cut off that much so you end up with this middle 49 ratio and you have I've got downloaded episodes of Nemo on the Buzzcocks that are in that ratio because they're recorded off UK Gold mm. look like that and initially I thought I mean uncharitably at the start I was thinking well they're just doing this because if they did it in complete widescreen you wouldn't be able to tell that you're not watching ITV 
But then I, th- I thought no, it's actually very beautiful. The image, the, the the shots of the landscape are absolutely gorgeous, and the, mm. the, the way they're naturally it's just fantastic. And the way it works in close up and the kind of portraiture aspect, I really, really found appealing because you do get a complete beautiful close up shot of someone's face, but with just enough space on either side that it's not like they're isolated. But you get this feeling of the background. That I thought it was. I thought it worked really, really nicely. It's a, it's a, it's a film that knows how to deal with the visual. So, for example, that image of something burning, yeah, which may be a car, yeah, which you know you're told is a car, yeah, but you don't see the car burning. You see something burning, right? Mm. And it's in the middle of this beautiful, lush green. Yeah, wooded area. Wooded area, you know, but then you see, like, something burning and, you know, with charred ground yeah, around it. I mean, you know, it's kind of like almost like a metaphor for the film, yeah? Mm. Kind of, you know, i.e. in these green, healthy, you know, manicured, looked-after, lush landscape. Yeah, there's something kind of, you know, both that burns, yeah? Uh, that is felt more strongly or more powerfully and so on, and nonetheless also charred, yeah, and, yeah, on its way to being dead, yeah, to kind of... Mm. Um, With just this, like, hole in the landscape. Yeah. And you see, see that shot from above, and it's just this, this anomaly mm. on the right of the screen. And, and it comes back as well when, I think when Donald dies, and there's a bit of a montage, and, and that shows up too, and it's like, despite the fact that you know this is long after Paul's death which is what the car crash is uh, it's it's ever present mm. you know and like it tonally fits you cut straight to it because it's it's right there yes it doesn't what's very it. interesting is one of the last images in the film and one of the last phrases is when he says you know look at this this is all frosted over now but i want you to imagine it this way yeah mm. sunny green yeah so even there there's that thing of you know uh yeah, something that is both frozen, yeah, and at the same time, you know, can be revivified in imagination. There's something about, there's a connection of imagery, yeah. I mean, I see a connection between that dichotomy and the charred burning car in this lush green forest, yeah. There's mm. kind of, uh, it leads to interesting kind of resonances. So, it's a film that surprised me and that I'm really glad I saw it. I expected it to be you know, one of those, like, lovely shot kind of heritage films that, you know, are slightly dull and, and, and middle class. Um, but actually, it, it really exceeded my expectations. I agree with all of that. And it's better than um, RTV. Right. <laughs> all right, so thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is easedroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs>